2: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came
1: very close to a catastrophic breakdown
2: of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about.
3: Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security.
2: This is KCBS In-Depth. years into this pandemic, and the economic recovery is now well underway. According to the latest figures, the country added nearly half a million jobs last month. And that's an especially impressive feat, given that it happened in the midst of the largest COVID surge yet. But just because the economy is improving, doesn't mean everyone is sharing in the gains.
3: It's getting really, really hard. Ever since the COVID stuff started, things got real worse.
2: Welcome to KCBS In Depth, I'm Keith Manconi, and we just heard the voice there of James McHale, one of the growing number of people who've been lining up outside the Lighthouse Food Pantry in San Jose for the group's near-daily food distributions. They
4: keep me alive, and that ain't no joke. Yeah. I'm not kidding you, these guys would keep me alive. If yeah. it weren't for them, I don't know where I'd be.
2: I... We got a sense of just how many people share his feelings in early January when the pantry was shut down briefly over a permitting issue. Pastor Ralph Omos, who oversees the site, recalls what it was like to break the news to people in need.
1: It was just heartbreaking, one after another. I had to tell different people here in the lighthouse to go out and tell them we can't serve them nothing. People were crying, people were broken.
2: That story, just one sign of the tremendous level of need that's still out there in the Bay Area as low-income families continue to struggle despite the overall gains in the economy. So today on the program, we're gonna hear from local experts and advocates about why this recovery has been so uneven. And we're going to welcome them on now. First up, for some on the ground perspective, we've got two guests joining us from Sacred Heart Community Service, a San Jose based charitable nonprofit. That would be Lydia Bustamante, the group's associate director. Welcome to you, Lydia. Thanks for having me. And also, Aaron Stanton, their director of family assistance. Welcome to you as well, Aaron.
5: Thank you. Nice to be here.
2: And to help us dig into those jobs numbers, we're also going to welcome on frequent KCBS guest Michael Burnick. He's an employment attorney with the law firm Dwayne Morris and also a former director of California's Employment Development Department. Michael Burnick, welcome to you as well. Welcome, Kate. So starting off with you, Lydia Bustamante, uh, you heard those clips we just played. Uh, I'd add to that that uh, larger food banks are also reporting a near doubling in demand for their food deliveries that uh, began at the start of the pandemic and, according to them, really hasn't given up all that much uh, even to today. So uh, I know Sacred Heart also does food donations as well as uh, rent support and other forms of aid. What does the level of need look like from where you're standing, Lydia?
3: Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, Sacred Heart Community Service has been around since 1964 and we've, we've seen all the different changes in economic disruptions over the years. Um, and, you know, to be honest, we're, we're not, we're on track this year to be able to return to a base of about 60,000 people um, this year in the middle of this pandemic is, is how we perceive it. Uh, but last year in the, in the height of this pandemic, we saw somewhere around 47,000 people. But the dip this last year did not represent a dip in need. People are still in need of resources. People are still in need of housing supports, rental assistance, food supports, to be able to supplement their existing um, groceries, to be able to serve their families. The dip this last year really represented the dip in volunteerism and the impact of COVID for those of us who are working on the front lines of this pandemic and are experiencing being COVID impacted ourselves. Right. So without people to be able to provide the services, you see less people being able to be served as quickly as, as possible. Um, and we, this is a real concern for us. Um, we were seeing somewhere around 10,000 or so volunteers every year in order to make this operation. Ser- um, possible pre-pandemic and this last year we saw about 3,500 unduplicated people as volunteers and leaders in our organization. So the relief and recovery process has our attention in this area so that we can continue to meet the demand because these systemic pressures continue to impact people that are most vulnerable first and highest.
2: Yeah. And uh, sticking with you, Lydia, what is your sense of why it is that the need has remained so high? I mean, uh, we talked about those jobs numbers earlier in the program. So there's more opportunities out there. Uh, The economy is improving in a lot of different ways. Why is that not translating into fewer people needing food and other kinds of assistance? Well,
3: what I can say is that, you know, people are. um... There's never enough affordable housing in Silicon Valley area to be able to meet those people who uh, the amount of need that that um, that people have locally. Uh, we want to be able to build more affordable housing. We want to be able to, um, but we can't do that fast enough to be able to meet the need. We also struggle with the fact that, like, you know, um, the supply chain certainly interrupts how quickly we're able to access the resources to be able to get in, into people's hands. Um, And it affects not only the personnel involved in administering those services, but also the amount of food that we can get into local communities as quickly as possible as well. So, you know, all of those things kind of exacerbate an existing dynamic of economic disparity in Silicon Valley, in particular, one of the wealthiest regions of the world. Yet we have such a high rate of people who are experiencing generational poverty. um, And these kind of systems were set up to not only um, create poverty, but
2: also to keep people in it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, hear the thoughts now from Michael Burnick and talk a little bit about those jobs numbers. Uh, Michael Burnick, once again, former director of California's Employment Development Department. So, Michael, we mentioned at the top the strong jobs numbers for January. Uh, it's actually 467,000 jobs, uh, much higher than a lot of people expected. How is that translating to into the bay area what do you think folks should know about how the numbers are stacking up here
6: okay there are really cross currents in our job numbers um one um you mentioned the strong job growth and we have had very strong growth statewide and particularly here in the bay area Um, over a million jobs um, just within the past 13 jobs uh, 13 months recovered Um, though we're still well below the number of jobs we had prior to the pandemic. But I'd highlight three points uh, about the labor market here also. Um, One is the very high number of job openings. the most recent data as of the last day in December, we had 1.1 million million job openings in the state. That's near the highest that we've had in the past um, more than 20 years. At the same time, um, you're referring to the question you asked Lydia, Even with all these job openings for a lot of people in the Bay Area, it's not that easy to get a job because you don't, there may be a lot of jobs in the restaurant field or um, hotel field or retail field but it's not, it's often the case that people don't have those particular skills. So yes, we have a lot of job openings, very positive but there's not always such a good fit. Two, we continue to have a large number of Californians who are outside the labor force. We have 920,000 fewer workers today in California than we had prior to the pandemic. Uh, California labor market participation rates still very low, under 62%. And a combination of factors, as you might imagine, health concerns, schools closing, lack of childcare, but we still have a lot of of workers um, who haven't returned to the labor market. And three, I wanna highlight another point related to Lydia's uh, discussion. Um, We've had the positive thing is we've had strong wage increases in California. And most of all, we've had strong wage increases for lower wage jobs. Um, Wages have gone up over the year um, about 4.4%. And for direct service jobs, lower wage jobs, they've gone up six, 7% even higher, but at the same time, of course, we've had an inflation rate over the year of over 6.8%. So a lot of these gains have been um, cut into. So um, as you can see, a number of cross currents, high job number of openings, but still difficulty for a lot of workers finding jobs based on the skill mismatches and um, a large number of Californians outside the labor force
2: all right so some a good numbers perspective right there as well want to reintroduce everybody real quick uh, you are listening to kcbs in depth i'm keith Mancone. today we're talking about the improving economy and why many bay area residents are still struggling joining us uh, we were hearing a moment ago from lydia bustamante also going to hear in a second from aaron stanton both with sacred heart community service out of san jose also just heard a second ago from michael Burnick, a former director of california's employment development department so uh, let's bring aaron stanton into the conversation now and talk a little bit about the sorts of uh, supports that um, might be needed to keep people in their homes. This is, of course, been an area of uh, great attention over the past two years. We've had the moratorium on evictions. We've had uh, rental supports. Uh, we've had uh, COVID sick pay. Uh, so lots of different things, but uh, they've also ebbed and flowed. The moratorium, uh, it, it was let up uh, back in September. Uh, there's now concern that the rental support may, the, the fund behind it may not be able to cover all the need that is uh, still there. And uh, we just got those uh, co- the, that COVID sick leave back in place, but it was gone for a little bit there. So it seems like everything is uh, a bit in flux. Erin Stanton, what would you want us to know about uh, the current state of play and uh, what you would like to see come next?
5: Thank you. Um, I think what we've seen throughout the pandemic is obviously a lot of people struggling to keep their housing, to pay their rent with everything that's going on. We already had a housing crisis when we came in and then it got worse because everyone lost their income. Um, I think what we've seen be really, really successful is some of the policies. Um, The eviction moratorium, it worked. It kept people in their homes during the worst of the pandemic. It kept people safe when we were all trying to shelter in place. Uh, We saw the end of that moratorium in the fall But what we saw here in California with the end of our moratorium was an extension through the end of March that helped protect people with a pending application for state rent relief. And that was really, really key because it slowed that tsunami of evictions that we were really worried about. All these folks who were struggling and now we're going to have an end date and what's going to happen. And because we had this protection in place for folks with pending state rent applications, it diminished it. It didn't go away entirely. We are seeing people get evicted from their homes. We're seeing people get evicted for all sorts of reasons. We're seeing people getting pressured out by their landlord, even if they can't legally get evicted. Um, So we are seeing a lot of people displaced, but it's made it much less bad. Um, But now what's coming up is at the end of March, the end of the next phase of the COVID rent protection for those folks with pending state rent relief applications. And those rent relief programs have also been incredibly important to protect people through the pandemic and also to pay off all that rent that's owed to landlords. But at this time, there are still tons and tons of people with a pending application to the state um, and not feeling optimistic that the state can wade through all of those many, many applications by March 31st. And so for anyone who has not received their rent relief by March 31st, then we're gonna be in trouble again. So what we really need now is we need to figure out what comes next, how do we keep protecting people, because, as we've heard from our other panelists that the impacts of the pandemic are not over. And we also know that this, this isn't new. This is the same crisis in housing that we had before the pandemic. So we need to think beyond the pandemic to what we need to change to protect people ongoing in our community. Yeah.
2: Uh, well, we only have a few minutes left and I want to give a, a thought, closing thoughts to each of you uh, going out. Uh, let's turn to back to you, Lydia Bustamante. Uh, hearing all of that taken together, where does that leave us in terms of what families are going through right now at this moment? Can you give us any sense of what, what uh, a struggling family, what, what that particular form of struggle looks like uh, at this moment? Are, uh, are there a lot of folks that are really on the edge, uh, really at risk of losing their home at this point? Absolutely.
3: I mean, Keith, and that I would say, I would argue that that wasn't much different before the pandemic um, in Silicon Valley. I mean, look, economic disruptions come and go. Our families have been taking care of each other for generations, and this pandemic is no different. Whether it's the recession at the turn of the century or the flood in downtown San Jose in 2017, or literally a plague trying to keep us apart, I, honestly, we've spent a good chunk of our efforts and resources during this era trying to reassure folks that. So many of these systemic failures, just like them before you know just like those systemic failures before this one. um, We're still a network that takes care of each other, and we're taking all the precautions to keep each other safe to take care of our people. But what people need to know about these systems is that no one's going to come into these communities and save us from generational poverty. We're either going to be part of the solutions to these economic disruptions here locally, or we're going to be complicit in upholding the power structures that put people in poverty and keep them there. So we call out to all of our people out there who care about their communities to step up, mask up, get your vaccinations, and then return to getting involved in supporting each other locally, getting food and housing assistance to the most vulnerable in your communities.
2: And uh, Michael Burnick, again, a former director of California's Employment Development Department. Um, So if we are looking at a situation where there are many jobs out there, but uh, oftentimes people that still aren't able to find employment. Uh, what needs to happen next to improve California's job outlook or and especially the job outlook for those uh, most in need? What, what, what do you think is needed to get us out of this uh, situation?
6: We have a positive job outlook in terms of job growth. Um, and um, clearly what we can do about the pandemic in terms of keeping the schools open, keeping the economy open, that's going to be the main thing in terms of continuing strong job growth. There are also programs in terms of targeted groups. I spend a lot of time as a volunteer job coach, particularly in the autism community. And there are certain targeted programs, I think for uh, people with developmental disabilities, people um, with other obstacles, Um, they've had difficulties getting into the, the labor force. So there are targeted programs that make sense. We've got to rebuild our small business economy in California. It's decimated and it's been very slow to return. And then, of course, we've got to get inflation under control. When you're running an inflation rate of 6.8%, even if low-income workers um, are getting strong wage increases, which is the most positive thing that's happened from an employment point of view, these wage increases are undercut by inflation. So those are three or four of probably 15 things, Keith, that we need to
2: do. Yeah. And uh, closing things out with Aaron Stanton, I want to get your perspective on a warning that we've been hearing from advocates uh, and uh, others for these past two years that this whole time with all the economic disruptions that have been taking place, we've really been on the brink of seeing mass foreclosures and just uh, an awful lot of people falling into homelessness. Um, Update that picture for us if you could. Is that still a real possibility um, if some of the measures that you're talking about don't take place?
5: Yes, I think it is still a real possibility. Um, I think we're very concerned about what happens at the end of March. and, And this is not gonna end with the pandemic either. We already had a housing crisis before this began. It's just gotten worse and it's just continued to disproportionately hammer the same people who are already overwhelmingly facing the worst of the housing crisis before, which is our households of color and our households with extremely low incomes. And that's not going to change unless something else changes. We need to, as a community, get behind developing more affordable housing and policies that protect tenants so it's not so easy to get them out of their homes and programs that help people pay the rent. Because if you can afford to pay the rent, then you can keep your home. And I think that one thing we can take more positively from the pandemic is we have seen that these things can work. Policies to protect tenants can work programs to help people pay the rent can work. So we know some tools that will work. We just have to have the commitment together to put them into place.
2: All right. And uh, on that note, we'll round it out right there. We have been speaking once again to Lydia Bustamante and Aaron Stanton, both with Sacred Heart Community Service in San Jose. And uh, we thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we've also been hearing from Michael Burnick, employment attorney with the law firm Dwayne Morris, also a former director of California's Employment Development Department. Michael Burnick, thanks to you as well. Thank you, Kate. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond, I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, with jobs numbers improving across the country, we're taking stock of this economic recovery and considering who's getting left behind. Of course, as we've been hearing, many low-income workers are still struggling, even amid this jobs growth. But this story of uneven economic gains is one that's played out many times before. So up next, we're going to hear a little bit more about why that is from someone who's written extensively about wealth and inequality in the U.S. That would be Robert Reich, a professor at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, also a former secretary of labor under President Bill Clinton. Robert Reich, welcome to KCBS In Depth. Well, thank you very much, Keith. So, uh, as we've been discussing, uh, a booming jobs report is uh, what we're seeing right now, but um, also we're seeing lingering concerns. As we heard earlier on the program, the Bay Area uh, food insecurity remains high in the Bay Area. Uh, Fear of widespread evictions also remains high. So, I guess to start us off, maybe you could help us answer a little bit this question of why it is that uh, when it comes to this modern economy, uh, a rising tide does not seem to be lifting all boats.
4: Basically, it's about power, Keith. If you go back 40 years, uh, when Americans had, uh, most of them who were in the private sector at least, had a union or the prospect of a union, uh, many Americans, uh, again, both in the private and also the public sector, had more of a sense that they were being included in uh, decisions by management because of the power they had, mostly through unions, Uh, well, 40 years ago, it was a different kind of economy. Many people stayed with their same firms uh, for 20 or 30 years. They could rely on uh, not only wage increases, but promotions through their lives. Uh, they also assumed that their children would do better than they are doing. And that was a, an, an accurate assumption. All of that's changed over the last 40 years. The typical American has not really had a wage increase at all if you adjust for inflation. Uh, Even the last great uh, jobs report, uh, it shows that Americans are getting paid more. Hourly workers, though, if you consider inflation, actually are falling even further behind. Uh, And uh, we can unpack this power issue if you'd like, but I think that it's not just the Bay Area. Obviously, it's all across America.
2: And uh, you've been writing a little bit about this in your column for The Guardian U.S. Uh, I guess, uh, yeah, let's do unpack that uh, power issue, essentially suggesting that we are seeing the agglomeration of power into fewer and fewer large corporations that uh, don't need to bargain quite so much with their labor force.
4: Well, that's exactly the asymmetry we're dealing with, because corporations are merging. Uh, There's a lot of acquisition going on. In most industries, you have only two to five major players these days, Uh, whether you're looking at chemicals or airlines or food or staples uh, for consumer staples. uh, The number of major players has declined. On the other hand, Though, uh, unionization, uh, which is a, the, kind of the, the flip side of the same coin, that is workers getting together and exercising their power through numbers, uh, unionization has declined dramatically. Uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, more than a third of all private sector workers were unionized. Today, it's down to 6% which means that most workers have no power. Uh, that imbalance between more and more concentration of corporate power in the market and less and less worker power is played out also on a global stage. Because through globalization and technological change, companies have many more choices today about how they get additional output. Uh, But uh, they don't have to bargain with their workers as they did 40 or 50 years ago uh, to get more output, uh, which means, again, workers are left on the sidelines.
2: All right. Once again, that was uh, Robert Reich professor at uc berkeley's goldman school of public policy so taking that all together what does that say about how we should be approaching this current recovery uh, with inflation rising right now obviously there's an awful lot of concern that the economy is potentially over, overheating and uh, the federal reserve uh seems to be getting ready to pump the brakes a little bit raise interest rates but you've written that in your view that is exactly the wrong response uh, what's your concern
4: My concern is that inflation is not the number one problem. The number one problem for most workers is their standard of living. That is good jobs at good wages and good working conditions. Uh, And if we leave it up to the Fed to control inflation, we are going to have a recession. That's what the Fed does to control inflation. It increases interest rates. It slows the economy. And very often it puts the economy in a recession. Recessions are very bad for working people. Recessions mean people lose jobs and they don't get the wage increases that they might otherwise get. Recessions are not what we should want. We need to instead look at the, the major source of imbalance. We need to strengthen working people's bargaining leverage. Uh, We need to strengthen unions. Uh, We need to make sure that working people have a voice at work, on the job. We need to make sure that the fruits of economic growth don't all go to the top. And that's what we have seen. That's what we've experienced for 40 years. Most of the gains from this economy are now going to people who are very wealthy Uh, America's billionaires, 600 or so billionaires, uh, they did better than anybody else uh, starting with the pandemic. Uh, They increased their fortunes by approximately 1.7 trillion dollars. Well, uh, that's good for them. But what about, for example, a tax increase on them and other very wealthy people that would finance something like a a tax a a child tax credit uh, which we know because we did the experiment starting last july through december cuts child poverty by a third to a half that would seem to me to be the kind of no-brainer that we ought to be contemplating right now but we are not
2: all right. Well, Professor Reich, we only have about a minute left. But I, I know that this is a set of issues that you've been discussing for years and years and years at this point, And a lot of these trends have been ongoing for decades now. What's your sense of this m- moment in America's economic history as a chance for some amount of reformulation? We, we have seen there's such m- massive disruptions in the economy over the past two years. Uh, do you have hopes that this could be kind of an opportunity to change things around a little bit? I do. I, I'm always hopeful, Keith. Uh, my fear, though,
4: and I'm going to be very explicit about this, is that when you have large numbers of people who are frustrated and angry, who feel like the game is rigged against them, who are not getting ahead, who are not who are working harder than ever, but they can't show it, they have nothing to show for it, those people are very vulnerable to demagogues who come along and say, "Well, you want a strong man? Uh, I will deliver." Uh, it for you. Uh, I mean, uh, let's be clear. Donald Trump didn't come from nowhere. Uh, And the forces of anti-democracy are growing because, you see, there's a void. If you can't help people, if people really feel like they are falling behind, uh, they are going to fall for uh, demagoguery.
2: And, uh, of course, we've seen examples of that in uh, big and small ways all across the world over the past few years. We have been speaking once again to Robert Reich, a professor at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, also a former Secretary of Labor under President Clinton. Robert Reich, thanks so much.
4: Well, thank you, Keith.
2: And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week.